All right, Christopher here. Welcome to Do Explain. Before we begin, I'd like to thank my current supporters who inspire me to carry on with this project and make it financially viable as well. I'm very grateful to all of you. Big hugs. And while I'm not in the business of telling people what to do, I can't share my vision for Do Explain going forward. I like to work on the podcast full time instead of just a few days a month. I want to build a real platform for the fun and friendly exchange of interesting ideas. And I want to do it ad-free, if possible, because I don't want any ideas to be off-limits for us to explore, and I also want to keep saying dumb shit without repercussions. But to do this, I'll need a steady income, and that's why I need your help. So if you enjoy what I'm doing here, and you want to join me in my vision and become a part of growing this project, consider going over to patreon.com slash doexplain and sign up to become a monthly supporter. All right, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, my name's Christopher. Today I'll be speaking with Hermes of Reason. He's a philosophy YouTuber. Hey, everybody. Christopher, can I say something? <laughs> can I say something? <laughs> oh, shit. That's how you sound, man. Oh, my God. <laughs> can, oh, fuck, can I say something? <laughs> Are you... <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> All right, cue the music. All right, so, but it was fairly good. It was pretty good. <laughs> so, hi, this is Christopher, and I'm here with Hermes Arisen for a. I don't even know how many times it is, man. It's too many times at this point. <laughs> No, this is like, so wait, this is episode six, right? And so this is the the fourth time that you and I have talked. So I'm yeah, I'm dominating the yeah. hell out of this shit. This is the fourth, the fourth and last time. Fourth, I am wrong, so let's use it. But and yet it's been too long. It has. It, has it been like a that, month already? That works. What the hell? How how does that work? I know we we yeah, we've for, let life uh, take us away too much. We not we need to stop doing that. We need to. To take responsibility for creating yeah, life our own lives. Life should be secondary. Podcast should be primary. Absolutely. Completely agree. Absolutely. But, so, so I'm sorry. I just burped into the mic. That's not cool. That's fine. So we we've both had really eventful weekends, and uh, we haven't had time to catch up ourselves. So we could do it on the podcast here because it's uh, it's been extremely fun, and I think people would find it interesting as well. Do you want to start telling me what have you been doing this this weekend, Charlie? I've been masturbating to the thought of you in Oxford. That's what I've been doing. Yeah, but what do you do that you haven't done every other weekend? <laughs> but I mean, you're actually there this time, so it was especially feverish on my end. But anyway, no, but uh, I I did this thing called the Landmark Forum, which a friend recommended to me, and basically just a very kind of intellectually dense, almost like self-development type weekend crash course. Pretty like, you know, I thought fairly intensive. I mean, like I was I was staying with my parents in Orange County and it was uh, took place in Santa Ana and um, there was about like 100 people there and we were there from like 8.30 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day, uh, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. I just thought it was super fascinating and um, I actually feel left with this kind of greater sense of responsibility in my life, which is you know, an empowering feeling. <laughs> Just like with the podcast, it's like we've kind of been letting other things kind of come up and uh, 
because both you and I like really want to record pod, the podcast more often, and yet we're kind of um, there's other stuff going on, which which is understandable. But here and there, I feel like I don't know. Uh, I, you know, it's very common for people to make. Uh, not saying that necessarily that this is what we do, but uh, with the podcast, but it's very common for people to make excuses and and blame things going on in their lives rather than just kind of you know, taking responsibility for doing what they do and being creative and, and that type of thing. So Landmark is really awesome for leaving you with, with that sense of creating a, a responsible life for yourself. So I feel really great about that. I'm glad to hear that, man. And I want to ask more about the specifics there. But first, I just want to mention that Carlos de la Guardia, uh, I'm not sure of his Twitter handle, Della something. Yeah, Della 3499, I think. Yeah, yeah. He said something like, um, I retweeted this uh, a while back. He said, yeah, you can do, you, you can do a lot of creative thinking in an hour. Imagine what you could do with a year or, or something like that. And it, it's really true. I mean, if I look at my day today, I've been excited all day to do this podcast, but it's like you say, uh, we could be churning out so much more content. And most of the time it's just, mindless, uh, I don't know, checking Twitter or, or YouTube videos, you get stuck there for an hour. And it's, I mean, sometimes it can be pleasurable if, if you're actually enjoying it and it's relaxing to you, that's fine. But at least for me in my life, I find a lot of the time I'm just doing it really mindlessly. And I'm using that in a, in a very negative uh, way that it's right. It doesn't even feel good. I don't like doing it. And I'm like, I, I can even be kind of semi-conscious about doing it. And thinking, why are you doing this? You just check Twitter. What are you going to find there? So yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think it has a lot to do with uh, feelings that you want to avoid. Maybe ideas, bad memes and hangups about yourself and what you're capable of. And it's easy to get lost in that. I think it kind of really boils down to our patterns of not addressing our internal conflicts and our, our problems that are interesting to us. I yeah. think Popperian philosophy is still fairly new and, and of course still not really well understood and definitely not really mainstream. Um, and so, but, and, and yet I think it, it reaches into areas of our lives when even, you know, when you say that you're checking Twitter mindlessly, for me anyway, and, and, but I think probably for, for everybody when, when it's, when it's like that. And again, like the point isn't that, that Twitter is bad or that it's like inherently, you know, leads to this type of thing, but it's just our approach to it, which, which is flawed sometimes because sometimes Twitter is a great joy. Other times I'm doing it just out of a kind of, as I'm saying now, like a, basically a pattern of, of not addressing and pursuing the problems that are most interesting to us. But the fact that Popperian philosophy isn't very popular, the the idea of the fundamental nature of problem solving and, and finding what your interesting problems are in your life is not a really well-known and understood thing. I mean, and even by us. And in fact, I think that Landmark gave me some tools to sort of get better at that, to be kind of more thoughtful about what I really do want in a given moment. And again, kind of be more sensitive to that kind of thing. Like, you know, because like I think that when you're scrolling Twitter mindlessly and it's not great, that is a kind of almost like a lack of sensitivity to your own preferences, as it were. And, and, and I think that's right in line with a lack of uh, having a handle on solving your, your own problems and focusing on that. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. We got these weird patterns in that way. Yeah. I think that many people seem to talk about the problem being Twitter or 
video games or whatever it is that seem to be addictive to people for different reasons. And I've always taken issue with that. I don't like the idea that it's the, even with drugs, uh, when people get addicted, there it's it's not the agent itself, the the drug or the social media platform or or whatever it is. You some people are using it without misusing it, yeah. So it's clearly possible, right? So it's weird to blame the medium rather than your own relationship to it. Yes, uh, I used to be very radical with these things myself. I don't use Facebook. I canceled Facebook, but I've canceled it, deleted it, and then restarted it and gone back and forth. And I've tended to do that in many areas where it's like, oh, I work out and I work out so much. And then I I crash and then I'm like, oh, I can't work out at all. Instead of just realizing that, no, no, all these things that I have to do them at the extreme says something about me and my ideas about myself or how I relate to these things. So I think it's important to uh, put the emphasis on you. And, and why is it that you're compulsively using Twitter? It's not just that you get a dopamine hit every time you click a notification and that that can trick you into using it all the time. That's a very bad explanation in my mind. Yeah. Um, you have an explanation of why there is a need for you to go in and check it in the first place. And um, yeah. Right. That's uh, that's just an important point, I think. No, absolutely. And so that's a good uh, segue to get into one of what what Landmark calls uh, one of their distinctions, uh, a distinction to be made. And I I, fi- I find this extremely helpful to distinguish between what really happens. Like you you go on to check Twitter, right? Versus the story that you give it to interpret what really happened. Like, oh, Twitter sucks, man. I I these tweets are so annoying or whatever. But like, so what really happened was on the one yeah. hand. You know, what really happened is that you went on and checked Twitter and didn't like what you, you saw or something, or, or, or rather, you know, the, the whole not liking what you saw is based on a story that you gave. Like, you gave it meaning that wasn't there, right? It, it's just like, but one, one of the big things about Landmark, which I think is really interesting, it's like, the world is out there and, and reality is as it is, without meaning. The only things that give meaning to the world are, you know, people. But the meaning isn't already inherently there. Like, it's people who give the, the world meaning. And people, though, kind of, as I said before, it, it people tend to point at the world, uh, or like meaning being out in the world, but the meaning is actually coming from the pointer, not the world. So would that mean that everything that happened up until the point that we came onto the scene as the, the presumably the first people in the universe, was meaningless. Um, well, I mean, the, I think the point that Landmark uh, tries to make with this is that even now, with the existence of people who are meaning creators and all that, the world still is meaningless. But it's mm. the, the, the point that that is trying to make, that the world is inherently meaningless, is just to show you that you are the one that gives the world meaning. Like, and, and, that, and that changes and evolves. And so in the sense that when I say you give the world meaning, that's just all in your head. Like, the, the meaning isn't out there even still. When you're giving the world meaning, it's still not out there. It's still you, right, uh, giving the world meaning. And so it, it's just kind of this this idea that the, you know, the world doesn't have this kind of fixed set of meaning. and It is always our creative interpretation and stuff like that. Right. So meaning is an emergent phenomenon uh, present in people. Right, right. And I, I, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I, I know that I had a discussion uh, on Twitter way back with 
once again at Reason is Fun, Luli Tenet, and we were disagreeing a little bit about something similar to this. And I was saying that progress and meaning only make sense when there are conscious explainers like ourselves in the world. And she was pushing back on that a little bit. I don't remember exactly, but uh, that all the progress that was made up until the point that we emerged could be seen as meaningful in and of itself. Right. But I, I, I think I understand what you mean, and I think you're using it slightly different than in this context, perhaps. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, context totally matters. And I think that uh, one, just to kind of explain a little bit further and, and maybe give some more like a concrete example. So say, you know, your friend hits you up and and says, um, or like, let's say it's it's your wife, Sadie, and she, she texts you or something, and um, she says something like, I don't want to be with you anymore. Right. And then you yeah, obviously she are. <laughs> she just did that. Uh, she, you're you're well, obviously you're like, that. <laughs> but that's the thing. So so like you get upset, right? You, that that is a, an upsetting thing to you. Yeah. And and then say you guys have have a talk about it and, and all that or whatever. But but the point here is that Landmark says, look at what happened. And then, OK, so what happened? Sadie texted you saying she didn't want to be with you anymore. And now then it's like, OK, now look at your story. What did you make that mean? And then you're like, oh, well, I made it mean that, I don't know, the best days of my life are over. Or I, I made it mean that life is going to be really crappy uh, right now. Or, or, or that, you know, I, I made it mean that I can't have the girl who I love love me back, right? And so you you realize that it's, it, it's it, again, coming back to this kind of emphasis on one's own individual and creative sort of responsibility for, for what you're doing. Like, basically... It's like, who, who was the one saying, or like, where did the idea come from that the best days of your life are over when Sadie said that to you? You. You're, you're the one that gave it that interpretation. Like, what actually happened? Sadie just texted you Yeah, it wasn't implicit in the text. Well, right, but I mean, but that's the thing. It's like, you, if, if you are really open-ended and creative in terms of how you think about that, there are an infinite number of ways to interpret that situation. Infinite number of meanings that you can give to it. And, and ways of, of, of approaching it after that. It sounds, on the one end, very Deutschian, in, or, or Popperian, rather, in the, in the idea that it's uh, interpretation all the way down. Right. And yet, it also sounds very in line with uh, more meditative uh, ideologies, like, uh, or ideology might not be the right the right word, but Buddhism or, or ideas where, where you're meditating, you're, you're trying to, and I don't like this way of putting it because it's still empiricist as fuck, but yeah, you're seeing the world as it really is or free of interpretation or whatever. But to some extent, you can do that in, it can be free of the verbal conscious uh, interpretation that you give, the story, so to speak. Right. It's just about making that distinction because, I mean, yeah, of course you could be wrong about what really happened, but it's just, it's just about getting at the fact that how often we give a kind of meaning to something that need not really be there. Like the, the meaning like really wasn't inherent in the thing. There was just the thing. And yeah, you could be wrong about, you know, that, that's the whole thing. It's like, it's not, you know, in terms of the empiricist criticism, like it just, it's just boiling it down to dis- distinguishing between the, the meaning you give something versus, you know, just the thing that happened. Right. And of course you, you could be wrong about that or, yeah. or whatever. And, but it, it's, I think the empiricism criticism is is relevant when you think about how people usually conflate the meanings in the stories. People think that, oh no, like, you know, Sadie texting you that 
I, I got from that text the meaning that I'm giving it. I got it from that. And it's like, no, that, that meaning was you. But the, the whole what actually happened thing, I think it's, um, need not bring up the empiricist criticism just because it's, it's trying to make a different type of distinction. But the harmfulness of empiricism comes from that thinking that you're deriving directly the meaning of the thing when it's really just the thing. Yeah. So the, the, the whole idea of that teaching from Landmark is that you are creating your own reality to a larger extent than you think. Yes. Uh, and that the choice is yours, you know? I mean, you can take that to a level where it's really annoying and you start saying that, yeah, well, I created even the fact that she sent me the text because I was manifesting that by thinking about it, which would be the extreme of this type of perspective. That is not good either, which is not what they're saying. But but so just wait, can you can you explain that a little bit more? I'm not sure I understand. Yeah, like the, the, the idea of the secret. Are you aware of this? Right, right. The book, The Secret. Right. They take it to the extreme that your thoughts are manifesting reality. If I think about something enough, that's going to happen. If I just visualize a beautiful woman coming to my door, knocking on it, I'm opening it, and then she wants to bed me for no reason other than I've thought about that. I can manifest my own reality, which would be a, a stronger metaphysical claim from something that's just supposed to be an attitude towards how you're interpreting the actual world. Right. So I think that, again, context matters. And I, and I think that the things like the secret, which is also known as the law of attraction. That makes me blood red mad. Even when you just said that, Wait, my so- blood is boiling. <laughs> That's your story, bro. Chill the fuck out. No, no, no but I, I just want to say. Yeah, the law of attraction for fuck's sake. Wait, no, but <laughs> here's the Sorry, thing, though. Continue. Here's the thing. So, like, I think the there's a good and bad part to, to how that usually gets explained. And I think the, the bad part is. Right, like this, and, and they try to conflate like these bad interpretations of quantum theory and stuff that like the world doesn't exist until you observe <laughs> it and that type of thing, you know? Um, yes. that, that obviously is such bullshit, but, um, the, uh, the real thing I think that it's getting at the, and important, again, the, the context that, that matters here is that when you learn how to, in a way, accept things as they are, you are f- more free to create your reality. Whereas when you feel like, you know, you always kind of have to um, carry your past around with you and and point the finger and blame people for stuff. In, in a way, that's a delusional state to not be really looking at things kind of the way they are and then using that as the starting point, but rather always just conflating the way things are with your stories without being mindful of that. I agree with the underlying point, but I think it's a little misleading to put it that way, to see things the way they are. Since it's all conjectural, there's no way to do that. You have to interpret it. Yeah, I mean, if I get that text from Sadie, there's there's no way to look at that and be non-interpretational. The best I can do is probably be aware that, okay, I need to make up a theory of what this means. I can choose to say, oh my God, that means my best days are over. I'm going to be alone forever. I'm going to have to buy a blow-up doll to get some intimacy. <laughs> Or, well, you actually don't have to anymore. The, the sex robots are amazing. They're just expensive, <laughs> I, I, I've heard. But so, or you can choose to, to say something neutral like, oh, I guess shit happens. Or you can just interpret that like, okay, maybe she's, maybe she'll be happier without that. And I can find someone who wants to be with me or whatever. It's the same, uh, same event, but you can, you can really choose to interpret it differently. But still, 
as an interpretation. Yeah, no, no, no. But yeah, again, I think there's there's two senses in which we're talking about interpretation there. I totally agree on the Popperian level that there's no such thing as being able to know reality directly. And, and that's not really what this is saying. You getting the text from Sadie happened by interpretation. There was the fact that you have a mind and then that mind is not does not access reality directly. Okay, totally agree. But it's about this extra layer of interpretation where we give meaning to stuff. Um, not just the fact that we experience stuff, but it's the meaning that we give those experiences. Yes, it's interpretation all the way down, but uh, the, the relevant interpretation angle here that, that is destructive and, and, and can be constructive as but well. When you say meaning, yeah. what, what do you mean by meaning then? Do you mean in the sense of how it relates to your life and your, your narrative, your story of who you are and what your life is about and... Right, right, right. The the context that you that you give it basically, and and then how you go about thinking about the context of that, and and I, I also think there's a case to be made that context uh, is relevant all the way down as well. But again, there are different levels here. But getting the text from Sadie is a, it's a very simple. Like you're not giving that any. Like of, of course there's the context. That I'm getting context, nervous now, man. <laughs> of course there's the context that she's your wife. Gotta check my phone. Yeah, there's there's the context that's relevant that she's your wife. There's a context that's relevant that you need a phone to get a text and all that shit. But but the but the extra layer of context that's important here in terms of meaning is the context of what you take that to mean. What what does the text mean? And so there's the context of what happened, but then there's also context of the meaning that you created for that event, if that makes sense. So this is a way. This is a line of argument that. I've often heard people uh, argue against morality in the same objective morality, that is. Like, the world doesn't care, just like there's no meaning, there's no right and wrong, and the Shakespearean, uh, you know, thinking makes it so. There's nothing right or wrong thinking makes it so, or something like that. Well, yeah, so I'm just going to immediately push back on that and, and say that the there are objectively better and worse meanings that you could give to something. Right. So like it is an objectively worse Ah. meaning for you to give to that event with the text where, for example, like with the the kind of on the nose uh, thing with our idea of objective morality or the Popperian idea is that there are ways in which you can interpret that that would close off the means of error correction. And then there are other ways of interpreting that that would keep that open and, and create new conjectures that would encourage the creation of new conjectures and rational criticism. And, and so that is the power that the meaning has, and that is an objective power. And, and the, the whole point of, of mentioning that the world has no inherent meaning until we come around and give it uh, meaning, uh, the whole point of that is to show the objective value in creating meaning. Um, it's not to dismiss that. It's, it's not to say that, you know, because reality doesn't have meaning until, uh, until you know, we create it, that the creation of meaning is somehow um, entirely relative or, you know, not important or not objective. There are real objective consequences to the kinds of meaning that you give things. Very, very good point. That's a kind of cosmic responsibility that we have, too, because, you know, given that the, the cosmos does n- not have any meaning, it's on us, you know. And, and, you know, coming back to responsibility again, like this is the human condition and, and our responsibility to create a better world. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I, I'm glad you nipped that in the butt. That was perfect. <laughs> so 
actually, since since we're on the topic, I know that someone asked us, and we're going to go into that later with some answering some Twitter questions. But I thought we could bring it up now because someone wanted us to talk about self help in the context of Deutsche and critical rationalism. And you've hit on a one very important point, which is the ability to actively create better meaning, better interpretations of what's happening that will lead to progress and, and more error correction. And I think that this also goes hand in hand with the um, the maxim we've talked about before, that problems are inevitable, sure, but problems are also soluble. Mm-hmm. And uh, what you just said there makes you realize how how much you're you even if you don't see yourself as a creative person or even if you're you know stereotypically creative you know i don't write any music i don't produce an awesome podcast you know about critical rationalism but all the time even when we're sitting here talking now we're creating meaning for ourselves we're we're interpreting everything that's being said putting it into the framework that is our life our conscious experience and we're we're creating all the time we're literally creating our own experience to such a large extent that it's, um, yeah, I think that's very, very important. Uh, and if you can, if you can do that without going into the law of attraction where you get completely delusional and think you don't have to do anything because you can control not just your world, but the world. That's where I think people do, uh, the wrong step. But, but in general, yeah, I just wanted to emphasize your point and agree with it. Yeah, I, I, right. I, and I'm not super familiar with all, all the whole philosophy of the law of attraction, although I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I did watch The Secret years ago or whatever. Yeah, I, I don't know if it really does, the law of attraction philosophy really does make an emphasis on creating your own sense of responsibility in your life. But I think that that's the good and, you know, that's the charitable interpretation of it. But but there's also a lot of mumbo jumbo as well. <laughs> but with the beginning of infinity and and self help and and critical rationalism, I think there is a lot to be developed in this area. Like again, the beginning of infinity is not a self help book, but it has self help implications that you can get from it. And that was actually another thing that I thought was so damn cool about when I when I read that book because it, it doesn't it, it's very in a way speculative and doesn't give all the answers and it feels very like much a open ended frontier of new kind of context and meaning and applicability that you can give the ideas in the book and I think that there is yet to be a a, a critical rationalism self help book or series of books to be written and I think they will one day be written but anyway uh, like I think that. You know, Deutschian optimism, there is a lot of other kind of connections to be made here. And I'm, I, I definitely saw connections with Deutschian optimism with some of the stuff that I learned at Landmark. And of course, you know, I was always interpreting a lot of the insights that, that Landmark gives and the distinctions that they give through this lens of, of Deutschian critical rationalism. And, and I thought that really helped, especially the, the kind of inherent creativity of people idea. That like cre- that landmark makes a big fuss about creating new responsibilities or sorry new possibilities creating new possibilities in your life and, and in your relationships and stuff like that. One thing that that landmark talked about was their concept of a racket, and so a racket is like you know when the when the mafia had like launders their money with a pizza parlor or something, but like so you go to the pizza parlor and you're like oh man the pizza's so good here and and then like. You, you might see like a guy with a gun walk by and then you realize there's crime happening behind this delicious pizza place. And it's like, whoa, wait, I thought this was just a delicious pizza place, but there's crime going on back there. And so you realize that there are things that you could call rackets that are in your life where 
for ex- a, a really kind of low-hanging fruit example is like, say, when you're kind of complaining a lot about some friend of yours who you keep getting in an argument with, which is definitely something that I've had. I've had relationships very close to me in my life where I basically feel like, you know, like like we I get into arguments with these people and it degrades into some kind of really shitty, you know, conversation. It, it no longer becomes this open and say free exchange of ideas then it becomes like really attacky and stuff and i've i have basically always yes i've always been open to being wrong but i've i've never really known kind of what's been wrong on my end i've always kind of just pointed to them and been like yeah well you you're the one that gets out of line you know and so this is a racket in the sense that it seems benign like it seems benign on my end right and again it's about taking responsibility for your life so on my end it seems like everything is going right but the thing is persisting. So I think the, the definition of a, of a racket that Landmark gives is a thing that is unwanted and yet persists. And so something like this pattern of getting in these crappy arguments with, with my, my close friends, not all of them, it's just uh, <laughs> certain specific ones. But uh, This podcast is like one, one big example of that. One long racket, this, this whole episode. No, no, no. But um, I think, yep. so, so the thing with a racket is there's always a payoff. There's always something that you get out of continuing the racket but on the other hand there's something that you're missing out on and the thing that you're missing out on missing out on is always far greater than the payoff that you you feel like you're getting from it so for example i realized that the payoff i was getting from the these degrading conversations is that i kind of clung to a sense of rightness and justification of myself rather than just being kind of more open about it and and i remember like when when landmark uh, you know, I was, I was at the course and then they kind of bring up this thing about rackets and they have the list of what the payoff is. And, and I was like, you know, it, it showed like justifying yourself and, and invalidating the other person. I was like, okay, yeah, maybe I could see how I'm doing that. And then it was like, right and wrong. Like you're trying to be in the right. And I was like, no, no, wait. Oh my God. Have I been doing that this whole time? And like, it just kind of like, I didn't want to look at it. Like I didn't want to admit to myself that I, I wanted to cling to being right. Because people people saw that in me all the time. The, the people who I'm talking about who I would have these kinds of arguments with would point that out, but I was ignoring it all the time. I, I, I just basically refused to believe that, that I was doing that. But now I basically realize that my role in how those conversations got crappy. And so coming back to that creating new possibilities in your life thing, like one of the things that Landmark does or encourages is this um, enrollment process where you tell somebody you know who you have this racket with that you realize that, you know, you've had this thing that you've been responsible for how shitty things have been. And then you tell them that you want to create the new possibility of having a more loving relationship, for example. And, and to me, this is, this is in line with Deutsche Optimism because, I mean, on the one hand, it's working on your blind spot. It's working on what you don't know. And of course, starting with being open to, to what you don't know. Um, and then creating some new kind of, thing that wasn't there before and and again it's sort of emphasizing your individual creative capacity to do that to create any kind of new possibility in your life whether it's in your relationships or whatever and landmark would say with with your more authentic self they have this whole thing about authenticity they they would basically i I would have to you know come to somebody who i've been having this racket with and i'd be like look i've been being inauthentic in this way that has caused this and it's and it's kind of a and you know it's it's the landmark jargon to say it like that but i I, what i get it from it in the deutschian terms is like authenticity would be like you just being you as as creatively you as you can be without kind of 
um, kind of clinging to, I think, I think it kind of comes down to memes in a way. It's because, you know, David says culture is like a set of behaviors that cause people to behave alike and stuff, right? A set lot of, of ideas. people. Yes. Right, right, right. But, um, yes, exactly. But like the, the thing is, is that people behave, I think, more alike when they are in landmark terms being less authentic, right? Um, and if you're more authentic, you are more unique. You are more uniquely you. Right. And uh, I think I see the dichotomy there with the kind of static and dynamic societies or memes, rational and anti-rational memes. The the anti-rational ones try to do the behavior exactly as it's supposed to be, whereas the rational ones are open to criticism and try to approximate the explanation rather than the behavior, as it were. And by the way, I think uh, Sam, uh, at crit underscore rat, uh, that's his idea that memes, the rational ones are... The fidelity thing is with the explanation, and the anti-rational one is about the behavior. You have to do the behavior this way, and then the rational one is like, well, what's the explanation really saying, and, and, and all that. But Sorry, I've been ranting here a bit. No, that's fine. I want to I wanna put forth a question about that then. So would inauthenticity always entail suffering then? I think so, in a way, yeah. Or, or the other way around, perhaps. Is suffering always tied to inauthenticity in some regard? Yeah, um, I, I think in a sense, I mean, because, you know, again, with this this racket that I had with, with people close to me, it, it's definitely less good. And, and you know, I, I, like, that's the thing. It's like you have these payoffs with these rackets, like this sense of rightness and justification for yourself. But you're always miss like what you're missing out on is is so much greater. And, and even though there's some kind of payoff and, and pleasure, as it were, that I might get from clinging to my sense of rightness, it never really feels good, you know. It, it, it's it's never like there. It's a quasi weird good feeling thing because it's not. It's like it's not real joy. It's pleasure or, or whatever, right? Like when I'm when I feel like I'm winning the argument and I'm like dominating them or whatever it is, you know, in the argument that there's some amount of pleasure that comes with that. But it, I'm not really experiencing joy when that's happening, especially the other person, you know. I don't know if that answered your question, but but basically, yeah, that that's like being inauthentic is basically you being less creative in a way. It, it, it's your creativity being used against itself in that anti-rational sense uh, with the memes. Yeah. I really I really like the point that uh, th- the more authentic you become, the more unique you become. Yes. If people were truly themselves, because we're such concat... Con- what's it called? Concatenations? What? Like, <laughs> I don't know that word. We're such bundles of yeah. different... So many different <laughs> ideas and experiences and... Uh, it would be very, very weird if we were all as similar as we pretend to be uh, to a large extent in different cultures. Right, right. And uh, a funny example is here in Sweden when, when uh, Sadie first came to to Sweden. She's American originally and uh, she used to dress in all these weird colors and have patterns on her clothing. Tie-dye, like camo Kinda pants. like you, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So no style at all. And, and uh, then when she came to Sweden... <laughs> Then when she came to Sweden, here everybody is wearing, like it has to be stylish in the sense of it should be, you know, black on black on black on black on black on black, <laughs> pretty much. We get it. And now she's like that too. And I mean, I can think it looks good sometimes, but it is very, people are looking the same. Yeah. The girls try to be, you know, blonde. They try to be tan, have the same type of big lips, makeup, and it's like same clothing. It's uh, It's kind of boring. Yeah. I want more individuals. I want more authentic selves. Right. And I think you want that more and more the more you... I I think everybody wants it. But the more you become conscious of it, 
in yourself and, and become more authentic yourself the more you want that for other people as well because you can you can really see different patterns and how people are trying to I don't know protect against rejection Ex- yes. to some extent it's scary to to put yourself out there but um it's also way more fun there's uh, no question about it well, yeah, I mean, like, especially in the context of, like, a, a relationship or, you know, social situation, like, when you feel like, you know, you want, you have something that you want to say, but your friends just wouldn't, you feel like your friends wouldn't, uh, like to hear it, you know, that, that's, that's shitty. And, and, and that's, that's suppressing a thing that, that really is you. You're being inauthentic when you are not doing something because you feel like somebody else would think you look bad because of it. And that was another thing about Landmark, too, is it's like, it actually really hit home. The centrality of our worry about looking good or av- and avoiding looking bad in our lives, and how that has actually like really dominated a, a lot of things in our life, and 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 certainly me. I mean, one I mean one of the things was that one of the reasons why I went to Landmark was because um, I I actually want to kind of get better at more consistently putting out content, right? Like with my with my videos and stuff, because I feel really inconsistent with that, and it's like come on, yeah. like I'm, I feel like I'm holding myself back. I want to get out of my own way with that. And it's, it's kind of weird to say it like this, but I, it, it seems to make sense that basically I'm being inauthentic with myself by being like, oh yeah, I, I want to do these videos and this is the thing that I really want to do. But, you know, on the other hand, I'm not really doing it that much, you know? <laughs> and it's like, I, I mean, you could say that that's definitely a, an inauthenticity in a way. So I got to figure that shit out. I, if I'm, if I'm going to do it, I got to do it, you know? Do it, dude. I, there's nothing better than the Shia LaBeouf video. <laughs> do it! Just! <laughs> Do it! <laughs> it's my favorite thing in the whole world. <laughs> well, I mean, um, but so yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Just something you said. Sorry, but yeah, something yeah. you said there before. Uh, the whole idea that you're you're holding back parts of of your own creative expression of of who you are and what you prefer and what you like, because you are once again you're putting meaning on you're you're, you're creating interpretations for other people, which is kind of a douchey thing to do. You're yes. saying. I can't be authentic with my friends because they are going to judge me for X, Y, and Z. Exactly. And I've just found out in my own life that I've had a lot of those interpretations on people closest to me, my my mom, my dad, my my wife, and they've proven me extremely wrong in how I viewed the whole thing. And yet I was so sure that my interpretation of their interpretation of me was correct. Can you be a little bit more... Uh, specific about an example there like 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 yeah can you tell me more about that i mean for instance uh, i mean a big thing is as a man the the norms around masculinity and and how you're not supposed to be vulnerable and i've had a hard time in general i'm not going to go all the way back to my childhood here but in general that, that my emotional needs are not important so i shouldn't bother other people with them so when I've felt really, really sad and I've had some emotional issues I've, I've tried to work on, uh, I have been reluctant to, to really open up to my wife and let her help me. Uh, I've always been the person who goes into a room alone and try to close himself off from everybody else when he's sad. I can't, I have to deal with it by myself. Right. You know? So when I've finally, uh, chosen to open up to, to my wife in certain situations, she's been fucking amazing. I mean, she hasn't done any of the things that I've feared that she would do. Yes. Reject right. me or make fun of me or push me away or something. Right. The opposite. Right. And so it's just been, and, and I've done that now in three different relationships recently and realized how much I've 
pushed myself back for no reason. Nobody wants you not to be you. Yes. It's just you that's doing that shit. And if they do, it's because they're not allowing themselves to be themselves. I mean, it's, um, it's very liberating once, once you realize that people want you to be you. Totally. And, and, well, as, as I think you alluded to, uh, a minute ago, like, you are also invalidating the other person, as it were, by not being yourself. Like, when they say, like, yeah. you know, like, say somebody comes up to me and says, like, dude, like, you're really good at drums or something. And I'm like, ah, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm okay or whatever. And it's like, in a way, like, not, my not taking myself seriously bleeds into me not taking them seriously. And that's shitty for both of us, you know? Yeah. And that's a big problem. Yeah, so I and, and I think that this connects to pessimism in a way. So like like you said, like Sadie did not react in any of the ways that you thought that she would. And yet you were carrying with you things that you thought you knew already to as it were predict what might happen if you decided to try to be bold and grow potentially try to grow knowledge in that situation, right? Um so it's like no, I I already know what's going to happen and it's it's a kind of pessimism, right? It's it's a disabling of your own creativity or a kind of uh discouragement or resentment or cynicism rather about your own creativity or rather the the creative thing that might arise and the precautionary from, principle as well yes anything not the precautionary principle is that anything not known to be safe shouldn't be tried right and and so that ties right in with pessimism um or deutschian pessimism where and and this is and that just shows how how dominating that idea or or kind of way of being in the world and living it it, it dominates so much of life this kind of pessimism um about what we that we think we already know what will happen if we actually took the risk to step out and and try to create something but you can never know that that's the whole point the whole point is you can never know what you'll create Mm -hmm. uh by definition because it will be in in fact a, a new thing that you'll create you can't know in advance what it'll be or how how it'll be uh, reacted, and that and that's another thing too. Like with the with sharing with people, though, I, I just want to say, like, you're, you, when you're talking about like in the context of relationship, like with Sadie, it's like, she, like not only are you creative and you can create all these new possibilities and and stuff like that, but but she can respond to that in this super creative new possibility oriented way too. You can't know, you know, and and so it's like be bold, take the risk to share that type of thing with her, you know, whatever it is to be more authentic, say really what's on your mind or whatever it is. And you might be surprised. And I think often we are in these situations. We're surprised at say how, like how easy it is uh, or how good it feels to, uh, or, and, and what might come of it. Like, you know, uh, I, the, the, the landmark forum leader that I had mentioned how her husband kind of went up to somebody random at the supermarket and said that, Oh, I've been inauthentic about this and I want to be more of a risk taker. And, and he got like this big new job because of it, because he shared it with this <laughs> yeah. random person. Or he might have got thrown out or thrown in jail. Or <laughs> he could have. She started yelling, rape, rape, <laughs> because he touched her shoulder or something. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> but the, I guess the point, even if something bad kind of happens, here's the thing too. It's like, even if you share something with, with Sadie and she doesn't kind of respond well, the point is that you said what you wanted to say. Like you were true to yourself as it were, you know? And, and that having a, you know, having better patterns or more consistent patterns of being true to yourself, as it were, you're going to just feel better and, and be better and error correct better, I think, uh, with that. So again, it, it's about creating the responsibility for your life and just opening all these doors, being the door that, that you can open, uh, in life. So I, I, I really loved, I highly recommend people check out the landmark forum if any of this sounds interesting. That's really cool. I'm glad you enjoyed it, man. And you, you, you seemed like a changed man. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, <laughs> I was I just noted to myself being like, oh please, but I was like, oh no, am I doubting myself again? <laughs> exactly. I was trying to trying to test you there, trying to test it. <laughs> nice. Uh, but um, no, but it, it's it's so tangible because I know I had kind of a, a breakthrough the other day for myself where um, now I realized that for instance, I often try to set boundaries for other people, for them. Like I always, I find myself excusing myself, saying certain things like, oh, if you don't think this is interesting, let me know, or let me know if this is too much for you or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm doing too much work not letting those people take their own responsibility exactly. to be able to tell me, hey man, I don't want to talk about this or hey man, uh, stop sending me things all the time or whatever. And that's, I'm thinking that I'm being considerate, but in reality, I'm not. I'm not taking them seriously. That's a huge thing. And I didn't realize that until yesterday. Yeah, that, that, uh, dude, that's crazy. That that like landmark taught me that exact same thing, and you didn't even go to landmark and you realized that. But that that's exact. <laughs> that is exactly the case, though. And, and that's you know what? Here's the thing. So like, there is this. Um, we haven't really talked that much about coercion. We should probably talk about that at some point and how we do it to ourselves and how yeah. there is this thing called coercive education and 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 all that. But I think that. It's almost like we're carrying the trauma of being coercively educated with us. So we, it, it like has this really nefarious effect of us worrying about potentially coercively educating somebody when in fact it wouldn't at all be coercive education. You're just kind of going, you know, you're, you're taking a risk to, to maybe like, you know, share something with, with, with somebody that you feel like, uh, like maybe I'm imposing this on them or whatever. Like, I don't know if they would like it, but that's the thing. Like, you know, we got to be optimistic about people. Like if, if it's real for you, if if it's like you're an authentic thing that you have to say, I think, you know, it depends on the situation, of course. Not everybody responds that well, but um, I think chances are that they, they will see that you're being authentic, you know? I think people can see when I'm being, like, authentic or try-hard in my videos. Like, sometimes I've been, like, you could tell I'm being sort of try-hard. Yeah. Other times you could just tell I'm, like, I'm just letting it rip, you know? People can see that, and, and it's it's so much better for not only you, the, the doer, but for the people watching that... When you're, when you're really, you know, being authentic and taking, it's so weird how that works, man. It's so weird how the degree to which you take yourself seriously has a massive impact on the degree to which you take other people seriously. When, when it, it has this veil of worrying about maybe imposing on the other person and, you know, or, or whatever it is, when in fact, like, dude, they would really like you to <laughs> impose. It's not really imposing. It's like you're sharing, you know, it, it's a, it's a potential for uh, collaboration rather than, um, you know, you talking yourself out of, 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 of doing that. And, and that's the thing, like, I, I'm really excited for David's next book on irrationality because one really big way that I think about how irrationality works is people talk themselves out of being as creative as they really are. And this is the kind of self-help angle, yeah. I think, of, <laughs> of um, you know, the inherent creativity of people and, and certain things that I got from some Deutsch's work. That, you know, you really are this, like, unlimited capacity to create knowledge, limited only by the laws of physics. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> the fact that somebody might get angry at what you say is not a law, a law of physics, <laughs> you know? You're not limited by that. That it's not real. You're giving that a story, and 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 you could change it. You could change the story. You could make a better story. And I mean, people have the full right to to be mad at you too. It's weird to just limit your repertoire of of, of uh, what you show to people 
uh, not even give them the opportunity to to yes. show a full range of reactions and emotions to you. I don't see. Yeah, it's it's very strange, and um, I can admit this is a very revealing episode. But I <laughs> I, I hope that people uh, appreciate that we're talking about authenticity, right? So yeah, have to be authentic. <laughs> but I have for the first episodes of this podcast, pretty much up until this very episode. This is the first time I feel. Because we haven't recorded since I've had my own psychological breakthroughs or whatever you want to call them. I don't feel even a tiny bit self-conscious. Wow. I really feel like I'm just hanging out with you, having a great time. I know that some people are going to enjoy listening to this. And before, I've always had this fucking voice in my head all the time. Oh, is this good enough? Oh, you shouldn't have said that. That wasn't good. You, You suck. Like all these things. And I've been able to act confidently. But it's finally clicked in a way where I just feel really... I feel goddamn relaxed and it feels so different. Yeah, man. And it feels amazing. I'm so happy about you gotta, it. You got to be the so, irrevocably uh, curious dickhead. We do dickhead. have a you lot can't... of material holding us back. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I was just, I was just <laughs> yeah, saying, you, you got to yeah. just, you know, be the authentic self that is the irrevocably curious dickhead. Don't be a fucking, you're not, If no, no dickhead know, is fucking shy about being a dickhead. Therefore, you know, you wouldn't be a dickhead if you were, you know, so, so go for it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, man. I will. <laughs> and and another comment I want to make was uh, I haven't disclosed what I did this weekend, but I did meet uh, with um, uh, Luli Tennant at Reason is Fun again. And she told me while I was disclosing these these emotional things I've experienced recently to her, she told me that, oh, wow, you're the most landmark person I've ever met who's <laughs> never done landmark. <laughs> yeah, right. Luli has tweeted and about landmark. And she kind of yeah. thought that I had reached... Yeah, that I had kind of reached the same sort of conclusions as yeah, as people who who has done landmark, but yeah, I've done it on my own or or from another angle or something. That's phenomenal. Which was, uh, it was fun to hear. That yeah, no, that's amazing. I mean, if it is if it is an objective truth we're converging upon, then it's not strange that you can just like Church and Turing, you know, you come up with the same thing from different angles uh, at different times. Right, right. That's cool. Yeah, dude, it's amazing. And again, that's um. The inherent creativity of people, man. I mean, you, it, it's not like you have to go one place to learn the thing that they're teaching. You can learn what's being taught on your own accord with your own problem situation. Um, and, and it, exactly. it's objective Although knowledge. Although sometimes it might be easier. Uh-huh. Maybe I had reached these conclusions faster if I'd gone to Landmark who had already done these things. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But perhaps not. Perhaps not. Perhaps I, since you are, if you're in touch with, you are more in touch with your own problem situation than anyone else, yes. obviously. Right, right. So uh, there might be some things to to doing it yourself as well. But then again, I wouldn't want to, t- you know, start in the the forest and try to build my own computer. I- I'd rather buy one. So I mean, <laughs> sure. we should uh, should use knowledge uh, where it's available as well. Absolutely, of but dude, so so give the audience here a little bit, if you can, a, a rundown of how that went in your time in Oxford, man. That's that's really exciting that you went. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, I asked you uh, out of courtesy what you did this weekend, and here we are 55 <laughs> minutes later. Um, yep. <laughs> much appreciated. No, it was really interesting, and this was a great example of you can't predict the growth of knowledge, and that's what I love about conversation and why I love to have a podcast because, yeah, conversation is is uh, is transcendental when you don't, when you get to follow without restrictions if you find something interesting. So, completely kidding. I love this whole thing. <laughs> 
All right, everybody, Chris here. So I just wanted to say that for those of you who enjoy the podcast, uh, there's now a support page open for Do Explain at ko-fi.com slash do explain. That's ko-fi.com slash do explain. So if you feel like donating, you are more than welcome to there. I appreciate it. Also, if you would like to go over to iTunes and give me a five-star rating and maybe a nice review there, it would be very nice as well. So thank you for all your support, and let's get back to the fucking show. So, yeah, so this weekend I was, uh, um, my wife, half this episode is about my wife as well, but she she uh, travels a lot for her job, and I'm not much for traveling, but she was going to London for uh for uh, two days and i've never been and living in sweden i mean it's very close so i didn't really have an excuse and so she asked me if i wanted to come and i um hit up luli tanet and david deutsch and uh asked if i could could go visit them if i came over and they said yes so um I booked a ticket, I got with my wife to, to London, and then I took a bus in the morning out to Oxford to meet with uh, Luli to begin with, and we had a great first half of the day, and then we went over to David's, and um, it was uh, very mind-expanding. Like, I tweeted about it today, that they are very much two of my favorite thinkers uh, of all time, uh, and it was, it was very nice to, to get to meet them in person. And, um, although it's mainly about the ideas, I still want to give credit where credit is due. I know Luli was, uh, even more lovely in person than she was Aww. on Twitter, which is uh, <laughs> hard to imagine. And David, <laughs> I have to say, I've always had uh, a, a hunch that he is, he's very funny guy and his, uh, his zingers, I hate myself for using that word was almost as good as his, uh, explanations. So I had a, I had a great hell time. yeah, uh, really funny, funny chap. So uh, it was great. Wow, epic, it was great. Yeah, and uh, and then I also got to, the day after I got to meet my uh, another one of my favorite thinkers, which is my metabolic nutritionist called Merrick Doyle, who is uh, uh, operating out of London and has helped me with a lot of my my health issues. But he has some really good and interesting ideas uh, surrounding introspection and, and, and uh, psychological progress as well. So I wanted to go into a little bit something I talked to David about that I think we, I'm not entirely clear on whether we disagree or not, but I think we disagree slightly on this. And it has to do with the, the value of drugs in the sense of, of enhancing creativity or, or, or uh, for problem solving in general. Mm-hmm. And so Merrick would be very much in favor of it. And I've taken David's position to be something like most usual drugs that people use for re- recreational use, like ecstasy, LSD, cocaine, heroin, are not really very good in this context. And I think his argument is that fundamentally our brains have evolved under uh, an immense selection pressure. And the only thing drugs can do, being mechanical, they're not creative entities. They can uh, either turn on a process in your brain that could be turned off some other way or it can turn something off. So it just affects your brain chemistry and it's not doing something new. So if a drug did something to the brain that made the brain much better, then why wouldn't the brain already have evolved 
to be in that state. And I, I'm willing to concede that point. Sure. So fundamentally, yeah, drugs can't, they can't make you more creative because you're already fundamentally creative, as creative as you can be, so to speak, in your capacity, right? right. So, uh, so far we agree. But then I think there are two possible mistakes here. One is, it's just like saying that, yeah, sure, uh, everything is interpretational, uh, but, but but it's still a fact that we are tied to physiological, we are in bodies, and we we are wired by evolution to react, to be drawn towards certain sensations, recoil from certain other ones, and there are interpretations that are much closer to how we've evolved to react, and therefore much harder to react differently to. Let's say, for instance, if you have a problem with everyone has pretty much stress, uh, stress too much, right? In the sense of you have some systematic chronic stress most people have that you shouldn't activate your stress response, your fight and flight mode uh, that often as we do. And yet we do. And so that has physiological implications. You release a cascade of stress hormones, cortisol, adrenaline, things like that. You get uh, a, a different balance in your brain of glutamate, which is uh, one of the most common neurotransmitters, which is excitatory. It agitates the brain, right? It's important because it keeps you awake and, and on point and you can learn and stuff like that. But too much in contrast with the uh, the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter, GABA, that will make, there needs to be a balance there for you to feel calm and feel relaxed and be able to learn and not feel stressed out, right? So if you are in a, in a mode where your glutamate is, is much too high, the percentage, so that your brain is always excitatory and you have trouble relaxing and stuff like that, you have a different sensational profile in your body and you mm-hmm. will tend, thanks to evolution, to interpret those type of sensations in a very negative uh, light, which will take up memory capacity and attention resources from you that you could otherwise use to be creative. What I see the value in drugs is, first of all, my, my nutritionist gave me a, uh, an analogy that I, or a metaphor that I thought was good. Like, say, when your brain is in that agitated state, psychologically, it's like you're, you're in this little tent and you've locked yourself in there and you see all these scary shadows on the outside and you hear all these loud clanking noises and you're just so fucking afraid. You, there's no way you're going to open that tent. You just feel like I have to be on edge and just protect myself, right? And he said that once you can rebalance the GABA glutamate and, and uh, calm other stress hormones and things like that, then you feel more inclined to be like, hey, maybe maybe I'll open the tent. Let's see what's outside. And you open it up, and you look out and you see, oh, it was just, I was right by a construction site and there are a lot of happy builders here and they're building a preschool or something nice. And they they smile at you and say, hey, do you want a sandwich? And they, you, you know, you become friends. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so it does matter what sensations you have, even if ultimately it shouldn't matter, as we've discussed before. And so different drugs do different things physiologically and hence give you different sensations, different experiences, and hence should be different in how useful they can be for your situation. So if you are, and I suspect after meeting David as well, that maybe he would be a person who wouldn't benefit 
this is highly speculative, from taking drugs, because he might already be in a state where his creativity is working the way he would like it to work. That is, that he might not be that inhibited by certain anti-rational means or hang-ups that, that is hijacking his creative capacity to the same degree that maybe most people, or at least the big part of people who are really anxious and even depressed. So... I would say that if you take, for instance, cocaine, if you're already in a stressed state, I don't know how much that would do for you, but maybe taking MDMA, who is classed as something called an empathogen, gives you strong sense of empathy, safety, you feel safe, you can, you can feel like you can actually look at the psychological, the bad interpretations you've made and change the way you react to certain sensations in the future. But you might not have gotten there without the drug intervention. Or you might have not gotten there nearly as fast, for instance. Or uh, psilocybin is a great example where people say they have these great experiences. And you could think of it from a psychological and a physiological point of view that it seems to be very related to a, a part of the brain called the default mode network. Mm-hmm. which is responsible for daydreaming or also strongly correlated with self-referencing. Self-talk and stuff, yeah. Yeah, and and unfortunately, many people, especially people who suffer, seem to have mainly negative self-talk and divert too much energy into this uh, self-referential loop of condemnation or, or whatever it is that's keeping you from being your authentic self, if we tie it back to what you said about Landmark. And so if you take a drug like that, that's been proven to kind of quiet dampen the, down that, or even, yeah. Can, yeah, quiet, yeah, quiet the network, like shut off that self-referential process if you take high enough of a dose. It might just be that a certain drug can get you to that place better than anything else where another drug wouldn't. There seem to be reliable effects on people with certain disorders uh, with specific drugs and I think there is a reasonable explanation here that ties into what I've said so far. What's your intuition? You, well, you want to be wary of the whole selection effect thing where, yeah, like there are many successful stories of people ta- taking, say, like a psychedelic and then having this transformative experience that was very positive. But you also have people who have very, you know, blah or bad experiences as well. Um, but, you know, the, the obviously the, the transformative ones are far more inspiring and far more fun to, to talk about. Um, and I But I think it, you know, it very much depends on, you know, your problem situation. Like, you know, I, I did um, psilocybin, which is the, the compound in magic mushrooms, uh, like about, what was that, six years ago, um, and had this amazing, what felt like a transformative uh, experience where I, I mean, I, you know, and, and talk about kind of having like no fear and and kind of feeling like I you know so comfortable in my own skin in a way that I I had not before and and you know I I certainly then pointed to you know the mushrooms as as being the thing that showed me that but yeah I mean I I don't know. so so just to clarify though like you think that sometimes it's just good just it's just flat out good to take something like a psychedelic and have a transformative experience from that but but on the other hand are you saying that David thinks Nah, not really, because you don't really need that. Like, uh, is the contention whether or not we we need those things at a given time, like that we otherwise would not have discovered uh, some kind of transformative idea or set of ideas without the the psychedelic, or um, 
you know, versus just being like fully creative and being able to always have that capacity to create whatever kind of idea it is, because that's, that is what it is. I mean, whether the ideas are explicit or not, what made my, you know, mushroom experience so profound was ideas. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. It's all ideas. Right, right. So like, you know, and, and, and Landmark, what they taught me at Landmark were ideas. Um, and I, I even, I, I actually think that kind of what I, how I think about kind of, you know, you know, taking responsibility in my life now and creating that, uh, more, um, feels almost like I, I have had a kind of psychedelic like re- revelation. Uh, but, 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 you know, I, I went to this course thing, you know, it, it was this course. And so there's, there's so many ways of doing, of doing it, of, of creating new possibilities and, 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 um, uh, and that type of thing for, in your own life. And that, that is, you know, the nature of creativity that there are, there's no, you know, one way of doing it, you know? Um, so I, I, I think the point I'm trying to make is that drugs can be very, very useful tools in getting rid of obstacles that are preventing you from being creative rather than in some fundamental way changing your, your creativity per se. And I think that is David's main point there. But also, like, if you have just uh, the whole example I gave of the, the glutamate GABA balance in the brain, for instance, if you have, I mean, if you have immense pain in your leg, it would help to take a drug to re- relieve you of that, and then you have more resources to be creative. Right, right, right. I read a, a book recently called It's Not Always Depression, which is about a certain form of psychotherapy. I don't remember exactly what the uh, what the acronym was now, but uh, the whole idea is that you have, really shortly, you have core emotions, joy, sadness, um, fear, uh, excitement, sexual excitement, disgust, and I, I'm blanking on the seventh one. But And then you have inhibitory emotions, which is anxiety, shame, and guilt. They inhibit your expression of core emotion. So when you're trying to express a core emotion, but let's say, let's say for me that I learned that, okay, it's not okay to express sadness or grief when uh, in front of other people. So then instead, when I feel sad, I get anxiety. Because I don't feel like it's safe to express that core emotion, so the inhibitory emotion takes over. So, so for instance, a point they made in the book was it's important to really many people who has a lot of anxiety disorders or depressed or stuff like that. They're numb. They're they're very cut off from their feelings. And the body, we've talked about this. They mentioned focusing, which is something uh, psychological method that that you and I have talked a lot about. Uh, which involves really listening to your body because your sensations, your emotions are giving you valuable information. You can't just be in your head thinking. You also have to give credence to the entirety of your experience, which includes mm-hmm. the body, right? So yes. in, a, in, a, in a case like that where you're numb and not used to expressing and feeling your emotions, for instance, having some cannabis, which uh, we know enhances perception, and strengthen certain sensations could help you be more in tune with what you're actually feeling if you have the tools to do that. It's still your creative work that's the important part there, but it could be a very useful guide, a help to get you there. And I think different drugs can help with different issues in this regard and help people mainly who are blocked in their creative uh, outflow, so to speak. Yeah, um... (laughs) Hmm. The the thing is, though, I mean, like, uh, you can have something like a, a very profound 
uh, psychedelic experience uh, where you know you, you feel like your your life has changed, but then your life maybe doesn't really change all too much or something. I, like that there there is so oh, much uh, you know idea level creative work that you are infusing into the you know that physiological thing where your serotonin's being released and all that. And there, I think, you know, cultural ways of maybe interpreting that, like, you know, I think serotonin, serotonin is often interpreted as when you're experiencing a kind of influx of it, is that you feel like maybe important or something, you know, you you have this sense of kind of being more like embodied and bold and, you know, in the world or something. So I'm I'm not I'm not sure. <laughs> Sorry, but I'm not totally sure. I'm, I'm I'm clear on the distinction here. Are you saying that like that? Given certain physiological restraints, for example, taking, say, a psychedelic uh, can be a, a very effective path to opening creative doors, whereas if you didn't have some kind of technology like a psychedelic to do whatever is done there physiologically, then kind of just coming up with the ideas for yourself or, or whatever is a lot harder or, or that like it's, you know, you're kind of fast tracking some area of progress in your life with, with the psychedelic and, and that's related to certain physiological conditions uh, or, you know, I, sorry, man, I, I feel sort of vague on this. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. I'm sure you're not the only one wondering this then, but so basically, of course you can, one can take a psychedelic make a completely wrong interpretation. Many patients uh, with death anxiety, where they've done studies on this, have become less afraid to die and so felt better because they made an interpretation that, oh, they felt like consciousness would outlive the body or was bigger than their consciousness or something like that. And that, to me, is analogous to someone believing in a god and an afterlife and hence feeling really safe and good about that because they're not going to die. That's... I mean, that could help, but then, then so could other irrational things. So that, that's not really what I'm trying to advocate. I'm, I, I think I'm mainly saying that physiology matters. Yeah. Uh, the better you feel, the better your body, uh, the more optimal your body is functioning according to what it's supposed to, to do physiologically, the easier it is for you not to be distracted away from your creativity. And what I'm think, I think I'm saying with, Depressed and anxious people seem to be very, very stuck in being completely certain of how the world is and how they are. And I think getting completely thrown out of yourself in a way that people who hasn't experienced a powerful psychedelic trip can't really conjecture just by theorizing, I think that could, if nothing else, it shows you that what you thought was completely and utterly uh, certain and unquestionable is now no longer so. And that, I think, can have a, a value in and of itself. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, well, take like Stephen Hawking, for example, a guy who is so physiologically debilitated, right? Um, and yeah, yet, dead, so surely he is, had... Yeah. S- what was that? <laughs> yeah, he's dead, so he's pretty debilitated. I, I agree. <laughs> No, 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 but you know what? You, the guy was like in a wheelchair for like a, the better part of his life, and like doing science. Though I imagine he experienced great joy doing science in spite of his physiological state. You know, and I think that this, you know, comes back to the whole: what is actually happening versus what stories you're you're giving it, right? So I think that when you know we see Stephen Hawking and and we think about, oh man, like let's let me try to put myself in his shoes there. 
uh, or in his wheelchair there for a second, it's like, oh God, you know, that'd be, that'd be horrible. Like, I mean, not that, you know, that, that it isn't definitely a, a hindrance and sucks, but, but, but the whole idea of it sucking, you can look at it as a, you know, a story that, that you're giving it to that and it need not suck. Like if that's your situation, uh, not to sound redundant, but that's your situation. You know, and and I think when, like I said earlier, I think I said it that um, there is, I think, something to accepting things as they are that leaves you a greater sense of open-ended creativity in your own life, oh, rather absolutely. than kind of absolutely. carrying these interpretations with you. No, for sure, for sure. I'm not argue. I I don't think it's in any sense impossible to experience joy or be creative in bad physiological states, but. Although I would say that Stephen Hawking, I mean, sure, he had, he had some issues and I have no idea how, to what extent those issues were, uh, similar to what I'm talking about. But it's different, I think, to be in a wheelchair and having 20 times the amount of normal adrenaline in your bloodstream all the time as your default or cortisol. I mean, there, there is a point where, and I've been here, not to, I mean, that's, it's anecdotal is my experience, but it's very, very different. At a certain amount of pain, your brain won't let you think about anything else. That's just how we're wired. It's the same thing with a certain amount of stress hormones circulating in your bloodstream. Your body won't let you sit down to meditate because it thinks you're running from a tiger. Well, but wait a sec. So, so, but how do how do you explain something like the the meditators who would like self immolate, you know, when they light themselves on fire and yet there they are still meditating, not moving at all? What the hell is going on there? Yeah, I would say two different uh, possible explanations there. One is you can probably after thirty years of practice, perhaps learn to to deal with stress hormones in a way that will let you do that. But that's not the everyday person, so it doesn't really apply. And secondly, I think that... Well, well, go ahead. I mean, well, I was just going to say, but I mean, like, obviously this is a kind of knowledge. Like, yeah, as you just said, like, there's a certain kind of practice that you could do, and then you could acquire the knowledge to... It may not need 30 years of practice. As I think you're saying, it might just be how what happens and how you interpret a psychedelic experience. It might be a landmark experience. Uh, It could be... A number of different things, or, you know, basically, I, I don't know about infinite, but definitely a, a lot of different things that, that can give you a new sense of how to interpret. Because, again, th- it does come down to interpretation. Oh, yeah. But it, but since, but since evolu- we are still bootstrapped to our biology and every cell in your body is screaming and trying to get you to do something, sure, you can learn to interpret that. But I don't think that that monk, for instance, could sit there forever. He dies in I don't know how long. And I'm not sure that's possible to do for... I think it's way more energy intensive. And of course, I could be completely... I I might have interpreted this uh, completely different if I was a Deutschian when I was uh, at my worst physiologically. But it is so much harder when you have your your genes telling you that you're dying right now or that you're in in sure. complete danger and of course you can change that with with your interpretation but uh at certain points your body's just so hammered and and weighed down by by it's like a car that's just completely fucking wrecked it's hard to drive man do you know yeah but i mean but but you're not a car i mean like like yeah but it's hard for a person to drive the car if it's completely banged up 
Well, sure, but I mean, so but the whole point of you know uh, the Deutschian idea of what a person is is that we are not a slave to our genes fundamentally, right? Like it it really does at bottom come down to that fact that we are not a slave to our genes. Like so, oh, yeah, oh yeah, but that doesn't mean they're not influencing us and can influence us strongly. But I also think that uh, if if you take the idea seriously that we are this this you know qualitatively creative entity, then I don't see how say you know you're you're extremely physiologically d- debilitated and you're just like I cannot ignore this and or 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 maybe not ignore but but you know I cannot let this keep going in this way or or whatever or like it's just so bad. Not I I know this sounds radical, but it's like I, that is still a story that you're giving it. It's like what's actually happening, and and then you know this is like and as you alluded to earlier, this is a deeply kind of meditative type insight. It's like you can be through any you can have any type of experience and notice, say, the thought of something like I need to get out of this chair or or whatever it is. You can notice that thought and then actually create a new way of reacting to it in that moment after you notice the initial reaction you don't have to go with that initial reaction um and that initial reaction is indeed you know maybe deeply tied to the genetic thing or the physiological thing but uh but i i think the in terms of choice and creative capacity that's always there like that th- there is always this way to to this is where it's different to talk about something in theory uh, or or in practice. Sure. Because I agree with you on the theoretical point. But if I shot you up with uh, a, a syringe of adrenaline right now, I very much doubt that you could just sit and meditate through that like it was nothing or be creative like usual. And that is exactly what, what some people are. Or are you disputing that? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that, um, yeah, if you shot me up with adrenaline right now, it's likely that I will interpret that as, like, what the fuck, dude, oh my god, I'm fucking angry right now, I'm gonna kick your ass just because you did that, and, like, <laughs> all this shit, but, like, I, I can, I think, in as a matter of my subjective experience in that moment, there's a way of acknowledging the fact that, the fact that you shouldn't have done that, the fact that I want to kick your ass, no, and that I But I mean, I, just I a- the bare sensations from the adrenaline. Let's say you did it yourself. Take me out of the equation. I'm just meaning. So, so it's like, so I know. But so, but then it's like, so I, I, I acknowledge that in my experience, I get this surge of energy having been shot up with adrenaline. But you know what, what, what the energy means. And then is I up tell you, me. go to sleep because it's just interpretational. Just lay down and relax. I think there's got to be a way. I'm not telling you I'm a I'm I've mastered you know riding that horse, but I think that there is a way. Uh, there's a kind of knowledge that. Uh, I'm open to it. You know, obviously I could be wrong, but like, uh, I'm just open to the range of, of, of creative solutions you can have is, is infinite. I think the reason why it's harder is so there's, you know, the physiological stuff is a hard fact, but I think that, uh, one big reason to emphasize kind of on my, on my end here, this kind of radical approach that, you know, it's, it is ideas all the way down, even though physiology is relevant. Again, given the kind of uh, pervasiveness of a culture of pessimism and how that runs so much of our lives. Um, I think that is playing a huge role also in what makes it difficult not to react emotionally to getting shot up by adrenaline because we're so used to thinking in terms of the things that are happening outside of us are, are just kind of there and, and not up to us to 
uh, as it were, take responsibility for is one way you might put it. Yeah, uh, 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 so basically, yeah, I think that there's some kind of cultural issue, a, a lack of cultural knowledge of of how to handle situations like getting shot up with adrenaline and not react to it that, that, is, that is in question here. But I, I mean, I agree that, so I think that, you know, obviously when we become AGIs and upload our, our minds onto the, you know, computer hardware and then, you know, we can basically fully have control over what programs are running in tandem with our creativity program, whereas we won't necessarily need things like, you know, eating, shitting and, and sleeping and, um, and, you know, any kind of physiological ailment will no longer be an issue. And I think that that definitely opens doors. Like, like that will give us more freedom. But I'm just, but, and, 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 you know, in a kind of obvious to your point type way. Um, but even in our condition of having still this physiological, uh, component to our problem situations, I just think it is an implication of the inherent creativity of people idea that there is always some way of reinterpreting a physiological thing in in any way, you know, um, to to where it, it doesn't actually hold you back. Yeah, anyway, I definitely I know think it's, that... it's a radical idea. No, no, no. I th- I think I, we don't disagree on that point. I think that in, in principle, it's it's definitely there's some knowledge as to how how not to be that uh, influenced by your bodily sensations or your physiological state, for sure. But what I'm saying is, just like with mental illness, I believe that that is also a matter of ideas, which is something I uh, want to go into uh, on another episode. But yeah, we're so far from having the knowledge to understanding how that works that to say to a schizophrenic who's having these horrible delusions that, oh, it's all interpretational, you can just uh, understand that. There's knowledge to, to get away from that. It might help them a little bit, but I also think that, I mean, I don't know what antipsychotic medications are doing. They're dampening symptoms. I don't think they're they're solving the main cause, but some people get really helped by that and they wouldn't. I mean, yeah, I, I just think it's too naive to say that today, where we are today, we can ignore physiology in the sense of, it can't help us. I, I I guess just and again because context matters and we're we're a bit in the abstract, but um I just want to say that I, I'm not saying that that physiology is in principle irrelevant because I am I am kind of uh, coming at it from an angle of like the in principle thing like what what is in principle possible for us to create to solve uh, a problem. And so is David, I think, to a large extent. Right, right. So yeah, I'm I'm not dismissing that, but I I think I'm just kind of and again, like for myself, like I'm I'm almost just kind of like pushing back on how how prevalent it is to think otherwise, to think that the yeah. environment really determines so much or that that your physiology or genes or whatever determines so much. I I maybe I'm sort of just um <laughs> like emotionally pushing back on that and I have to like take it to the logical extreme like no it's idea yeah. it's ideas man like um, no I, I like it and to give you some credit or or that perspective you you could I mean you could argue and I think I've even heard David talk about this too that I mean the most strong genetic imperatives like uh genetic Im- imperatives rather is to stay alive to eat to you know to have sex and we we can go against those as well so it's not impossible, of course, but, but but it's just, yeah, when you have immense pain somewhere, your brain is not going to let you get away from that. And I would say that applies uh, for mental 
problems as well. So, Mental pain. Yeah, yeah. So, because uh, that's a really low hanging fruit and good criticism, I feel like, uh, of what I, kind of the view that I'm saying. So, it's like you have to, you know, you, you have to, if you never eat, you will die, right? Um, yeah. And so, it's like you have to eat. And that, that's a physiological thing. That's not ideas. You can't eat ideas. Um, but I think that, um, but, but I, but, uh, I, this might be like a kind of a cheap shot. And again, again, this is pretty abstract, pretty like the whole in principle type thing, not exactly, uh, any real life example, but, but somebody who doesn't want to eat, let's say like, I'm going to just choose not to eat. There's nothing stopping that person per se from creating the theory for AGI in the next moment and then knowing how to do that and then implementing their mind on uh, you know, the computer hardware and then literally not ever having to eat. I mean, I know that's sort of silly, but like, yeah, um, I mean, that, that is a good theoretical point again, but it's not a good practical point for the person right now who is hungry. I mean, that's, no, 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 that's right, what I'm but, trying but, to differentiate but, between. Right, right, right. I mean, that, I think that's the problem with us being a bit abstract here, but, but, um, but I, I, but I do think that there is going to be a kind of knowledge or technology, say, some kind of, super duper psychotherapy form of technology that we will create one day where you can actually sit down with a schizophrenic and have a conversation with them and they would no longer be schizophrenic. Uh, and I don't, and I don't claim to know, you know, what's going on there because I mean, like, I'm, you know, uh, there's the whole neuroplasticity thing, but then there's also like actually having legit brain damage, obviously like, you know, for a person with legit brain damage, you know, where it really has impacted a part of the brain that's, that's key for thinking creatively, which again, we don't know, we know some things about that, but we don't really know how, uh, the creativity program runs on our minds or where, or, or, you know, whatever. But, um, this is, this is very conceptual in a way, but, but it's still, uh, and it helps in lots of practical types of situations though. Like I, you know, it definitely does. I will concede that point. To know that it's interpretational and you don't have to. I mean, I can give a, a really quick example and then I want us to go to uh, questions that we asked uh, listeners for, which is fun that so many people responded. But so I, I've had uh, lower back pain for as long as I can remember from uh, from my teenage years when I worked out too hard in the wrong way. And so I remember if I, if I hurt my back in a certain way, I get the pain, but then I also have all these interpretational structures around what that means. Now I can't work out. Now I'm going to lose muscle. Now I'm going to, you know, be in pain for this long and all that. And that made me suffer. But re- uh, the other day I messed up in an exercise like I used to do. And I felt the pain. The sensations were the same, but I was able to completely drop the negative interpretation to come back to the meaning thing and give it a different meaning and I'm not suffering from it. And that makes it so much easier to heal. So we do have tremendous power to, we don't have to suffer uh, from physiology to the extent that we think or even at all in principle. All right. So let's see here, Hermes. The first one is from, uh, let's see, at P. Posti. And he said... He wanted us to discuss being critical while also being happy. And to me, this is, I don't see the conflict there to begin with. I guess critical has a negative connotation for most people. But I mean, what we just did right now, I haven't been this happy in a long time. I love when <laughs> when we have opposing viewpoints and we're being critical. So I, I just think that's a matter of understanding what criticism is. 
and that conjecture and criticism as a pair is what what creates joy to begin with. So I mean, there's no conflict there as far as I can can see. What do you think? So yeah, um, I, I think that there is easily a, a misconception here. And I, you know, I did a video called Two Types of Criticism. So there's, there's, uh, mm. you know, consensual criticism versus coercive criticism or wanted versus unwanted criticism, right? Um, and, and I really do think that the whole point of critical rationalism is the relevance of criticism in a discussion that is, uh, voluntary, right? It's not about sitting somebody down you know, and, and telling them that they're an asshole or whatever, uh, you know, <laughs> and that type of thing. Uh, like, you know, the effectiveness of criticism is, is most effective, uh, when it is done, you know, consensually and, and voluntary and of one's own interests and accord and vice versa or, or same, you know, same goes for, um, the other person if it's a discussion with somebody else. Um, um, hmm. But it can go both ways. Like it could be just the conversation that you have in your own mind about a thing, the conjectures and criticisms that you're having about solving one problem, focusing on criticisms that that are fun, right? Because I, I, yeah, I, I think it is it is so co- kind of culturally bound up the the idea of criticism, uh, so culturally bound up with uh, a negative view of the role of criticism, and and I think you know, a lot in a lot of cases that's justified. But yeah, I, I think that you know. If you're a sense in which you could be critical and happy is, for example, like when you and I are having a conversation, like you're not one of the people who I have an issue with uh, when we get into like an argument uh, or like a, a discussion where we're disagreeing and then it degrades. Like you, you and I don't have that problem. But, you know, you and I have a lot of fun, you know, maybe bringing up certain criticisms and and. Uh, actually, let, let's, maybe another distinction is very important, that there's a difference between being, being critical towards ideas and be, being critical towards people. Yeah. And I think that oftentimes the, the best types of, you know, the, the best types of criticism, I think, are, are criticisms of ideas. Um, and, yes. and criticisms toward people are usually the kind of unwanted thing that, un, you know, unfortunately, most people think of when they hear the word criticism. They think, oh, they, that, when that person says there's a critical rationalism and, and, you know, that they're a critical rationalist and that critical rationalist or criticism is important, mm. a tradition of criticism, they mean, you know, like calling people out <laughs> or something, you know, but it's, that's not about that at all. It's, it's, it's about, um, you know, creatively trying to improve conjectures via criticism and understand things using the role of, of criticism and your ideas to see how, how your ideas hold up uh you know so like do i really want to play this video game Eh, actually i kind of want to make a video right now i would rather make a video than play a video game is a criticism against playing video games and that that i could be totally happy while having that idea you know like i will be more happy if i realize that some worse idea of what to do uh fails criticism um I, i you know it opens the door to being more me being more happy now in general when when people think being critical is anti antithetical to being happy it's just a it's just a bad bad meme around like you said criticizing people not understanding what what being critical can mean in the deutschian sense and i guess also a little to your point uh, as a more practical advice i would i've learned from this in my life with my wife happy wife happy life that really that really is uh, the truth and uh, yeah, just know when to have critical discussions and when not to. 
Some people just want to connect. That, they don't. Right. That that itself requires a kind of critical discussion, though. It's like, like you know, does your wife really want to have a critical discussion right now requires this kind of, you know, metacritical discussion about when is a good time to have that or not, you know? Um, so, but that, that, but that's, you know, to this point that it is in a way critical discussion all the way down, you know, uh, even if you're just, you know, watching a soap opera (laughs) and, and you're like, you know what, this is, this is good right now. It's like the fact that that is good right now for you and you're actually enjoying that, even though it's not, you know, uh, per se too intellectual or whatever, uh, or rationalist, you know, it's doing that is, is still, in in a way, it's it's a criticism of anything else that you could be doing where you would be having less fun, um, and and I think you know so David Deutsch's cr- fun criterion I think is itself a a criticism, you know it, it's or it's a it's a it's a formula for criticizing things that aren't fun in that moment and then going towards the more fun stuff, um, right. you know just and the and the hell yeah versus no uh, video uh, I did or the idea by Derek Sivers like that is um, that criterion is itself a kind of can be used critically, you know, um, and it, it can lead you on a happier path. Well said. And I, I just want to say before you choose yours here, my whole thing was comment in this thread. If you have a question slash topic that you'd like us to address and some fucking guy wrote twilight new moon. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love so, that. Let's hey, talk shout about out it. To at Birmingham Jack. <laughs> I love that shit. Uh, that's an inside joke for you that haven't heard the first episode. But so, um, <laughs> yeah, let's uh, now you choose a question here. Let's see what we got. Um, sure. OK, how about um, this guy, Eric Kendall uh, at E-C-A-N-D-E-L-L. Oh, uh, he I, says, like I would love one, to hear yeah. your opinions about monogamy from a critical rationalist perspective. Does sticking with one partner impede error correction? Is it a form of coercion, a source of criticism? Question mark. That's an interesting question. It is an interesting question, and and um, my my landmark forum leader a few times said, "I don't do concept; I only do real life examples, or something like that." And um, which is funny, but 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 like uh, because I think that you know it really does you know context matters; it depends on the situation. But um, so I think that if you grew up with critical rationalism in your life, I think it, it could be might might be like understandable to see something like polyamory as maybe the more open kind of way of doing things um, whereas monogamy is kind of more narrow and closed but you have to understand that you know a monogamous relationship is between two creative entities right and there's nothing you know even though it, it is kind of just this this tradition of just these two people being you know in that relationship of just those two people and it, and it might seem narrow you have to understand that given that you're dealing with creative entities two of them you're talking about you know basically a more or less infinite num- you know set of possibilities that can arise from the context of that relationship and and i even think that i i'm actually skeptical of of polyamory being like really that effective i think it can be way more confusing than effective i know it works for some people um in in ways but uh I would definitely consider myself, you know, pro monogamy more so than than polyamory. I mean, at least in my life, um, again, plurality of approaches is good, but um, but I think you can have a plurality of approaches within the context of a monogamous relationship. There's there's all this, you know, creative potential within that uh, type of relationship. Well, I I mean, I am a, a critical rationalist, and 
I'm married almost five years back now. So I would be a hypocrite if I uh, didn't think you could be both. <laughs> but that'd be uh, hilarious. Yeah. So, so the I'm just yeah, I'm about just secretly be- hating this, <laughs> wanting to be polyamorous. Sorry, babe. Uh, but okay. So just sticking with. Let's see here. I just need to reread the question. I don't. Uh, I don't see why. First of all, it all depends on what you want. Yes, that's the first thing I would say. If you really want to f- fuck a lot of people, then yeah, that's a problem. But you don't have to be a critical rationalist uh, to see that. <laughs> but but that it impedes error correction is the second thing. Does one partner impede error correction? Uh, I guess that also depends on your partner. I don't see fundamentally how that would impede error correction in any way. In, in what sense? Error correction for what? I mean, if, if you have a horrible, domineering, coercive partner, of course it's a form of coercion or, or can impede error correction. But I mean, that, I don't see how it's different from any relationship you have with anyone else. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't feel at all impeded or coerced in my relationship but it's also you have to realize that even in a marriage i mean a relationship is an open thing it's a dynamic thing it's not something you you can't predict the growth of knowledge in a, even in a marriage so the whole idea of yeah we we promise each other to be together forever i mean that's that's a nice sentiment i see that more as a way to convey how strongly you feel for someone in the moment when you make that commitment but if you truly believe right. that thing that marriage getting out of a marriage is is unholy or it's something you can't do, then yes, then it can definitely impede error correction or be a form of coercion. If you want to leave your marriage or if you're not happy with it. But, right. but in, in principle, I don't think there's anything pro- inherently problematic about monogamy. Yeah. I th- so I, I think Luli tweeted one time something like, I think the it was a thread and, and the first tweet was something like quitting is a superpower. Um, and, I, and I think it was yeah. within the context of, of that thread. But she said something like, you know, when people and say the context of a relationship or even if like if it's a job or something like that when when the people involved are willing to leave as soon as things go wrong the safer and better that relationship is going to be and i think that there is a sense in which the tradition of monogamy might seem to discourage that um i think that the monogamous relationships that go so well I think that it is going so well in part because the people involved are so open to whatever arises that might kind of point to leaving the relationship and then addressing that as soon as it comes up and not letting something like that fester. And it, and it might, the, the addressing that might not involve actually leaving the relationship. It might be, you know, involve indeed working it out, you know? I, I definitely, I don't think monogamy impedes error correction at all. Yeah. Uh, all right. So you, you, uh, what was the name of the guy who, who asked the question? So Eric, you can, you can stay with your wife and be a critical rationalism with, with no bad <laughs> conscience. You have our permission. <laughs> or become uh, monogamous now that, uh, cause we all know that you sort of implicitly outed yourself as Polly. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know what I'm saying. But. All right. Next <laughs> oh, yeah, tweet. That was, was trying to <laughs> rationalize that. Yeah. No, it's a great question. That was a fun question. Uh, So let's see here. So I want to choose one more each, I think. Let's see here. Yeah, okay. So so Harry Purcell at Spark... Spark Poo? Spark Poo? Hey, that's what you get, man, with that kind of name. So 
he he wants some more explanations of fundamental concepts, and he he mentions hard to vary here, which is something that Deutsch has come up with uh, for uh, explaining what a good explanation is that it's hard to vary. So I'm gonna give this one to you, Charlie. Take it away. What is hard to vary mean? I'm trying to think of a, n- a newer way to say it, but I guess you know the the way of going about saying it. You know, it's an explanation where the content is such that whatever phenomena you're trying to explain, if you change the content at all, the explanation kind of would no longer really explain that thing. So as we said, I think in our first podcast, you know, the whole thing like God did it is a bad explanation because the content is easy to vary. And it might help understand what hard to vary is by understanding what easy to vary is. Um, because, you know, easy to vary, the, you know, that, that God took, you know, your couch away because you could just as well have said that a witch did it or that the devil did it. So that element of the explanation, that it was God that did it, doesn't hold any weight. It's not crucial in any way. Nothing is leaning on it. So that's how yeah. it's easy to wear. You can take it away and still the explanation is just as good or rather just as bad as it was before. Yes. So Popper talked about how a good scientific theory excludes so much right? It, it, so an, that's another angle of, of coming at the hard to vary concept is that it's it's saying more about almost like what it isn't or like it could, you know, it could, it, you could, you could look at it as saying a hard to vary explanation is successful because here are all the things that it isn't. And, but, but the thing that it is, is so specific uh, the, the, the way that you're uh, explaining it. So, um, oh God, trying to think of an example. I mean, there's a fairly easy, the, the mosquito one I heard David use in a uh, podcast once. That So in the mosquito example, you say that, okay, a, a bad explanation would be you get, you where does malaria come from? It comes from uh, hanging out in swamp lands or whatever. To, to some extent, that, that can be true, but it's a bad explanation. It's not really explaining much of anything. And so a good explanation would be, yeah, you get it near swamp lands because mosquitoes are more prevalent there and it's a mosquito-bared disease where the mosquito has the virus and then it comes to you and it sits, uh, pokes a hole in your skin, sucks blood from you and, and hence transmits the disease via the blood. You can't, each element of that, if you change mosquito to a bee, the explanation doesn't work anymore. If you change the idea that the mosquito is uh, pricking a hole in your arm to suck blood to... It just sits on, uh, I don't know, it just buzzes in front of you for a little while and then flies away. That, that doesn't work. Like every element is vital for the explanation to hold. And that's why it's hard to vary. Exactly, exactly. The, all, all the components of, and, and so the, the, the way in which that's excluding stuff is like, you know, the bee thing or that the, the mosquito is just flying near you or that. Like there's all these things that, that it's not that, that those things don't explain it. You have to be, you know, specific um, and yeah, I mean, David just discovered what a good explanation is because I think people often say, and that's, that's what this hard to vary, the context of this hard to vary concept, that a good explanation is hard to vary. Um, and people were not clear on that until David came around or, you know, at least that that's not, that was definitely not and is still in a way, definitely not a very popular idea. Yes. So uh, would you do us the honors of choosing our last question here to end up a great mega episode? Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Ooh, there's a few, yo. Um Oh, how about how about Brett's thing? Um So, uh so 
So Brett Hall says, you know, challenge following uh, at Chipkin Logan's interview discussing how dynamic societies, stability under rapid change, relate to anarcho-capitalism. Um, if inexplicit knowledge in institutions promotes progress, would removing key ones help or hinder progress? Is there a solution? Winky face. <laughs> uh, oh, I, know I mean, this so one. gradual privatization of government responsibilities. Boom, mic drop. <laughs> All right. Thanks for today. No, sorry, you take that one. <laughs> no, well, yeah, I mean, like, I, I think that that's a really interesting connection there with um, anarcho-capitalism and the idea of a dynamic society. Although, um, I don't think, I don't even think we really need to go the full way of anarcho-capitalism where there's no government at all. I think you could just have a more or less kind of like libertarian government when, like, all the government does is, is you know, make sure people don't hurt each other and protects the country the from foreign invaders position. that would do that. What was that? The the minarchist versus the anarcho capitalism. Oh, like, okay. Yeah, the, the I got go- you. We have to have the go- we have to have a government with monopoly on violence. Right. That follows. Right, right, right. From- I, I, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's um better to, in, in a way, especially like you know, kind of in persuading people to to go down the road that might lead to anarcho capitalism to kind of still explain I think what the fundamental and as it were hard to vary role of the government is. Um, and, uh, and that's actually kind of an interesting, uh, tie in there because, um, I, I, you know, definitely think that the government does and rather should have a hard to vary role. And that hard to vary role is, you know, the, basically the monopoly on, on violence and, and making sure that people don't hurt each other and, and, and all that or doing as, as much as they can for that. And, and that is it, you know, pretty much. But so what is the, what is the argument then? For for letting the government do even that instead of having private corporations do that as well, if they can do everything well, else no, better, right, right. So I mean, um, you know, so yeah, Popper did advocate this, you know, kind of incremental way of of doing progress. Um, so I I at least think that it is it is better to the effectiveness of the tradition of having a government with that monopoly of violence has been indeed effective in 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 various ways. And it, that, you know, so it contains some kind of knowledge. You know, there, there is knowledge that you don't want to, just like with um, anti-rational memes, David says in the beginning of Infinity, you know, even though they cause these irrationalities, they, in order to survive for so long, they have to contain some kind of knowledge. So it would be a mistake to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's like, what is actually the knowledge that causes them to sustain, to, to survive for so long? Let's take that seriously. Maybe, yeah, we could yeah. do away with the other stuff, but how, how did it survive for so long? Maybe we can use that somehow, you know, and, and not have the kind of irrational outcome. So I think that similar thing with the government. I don't, I think we want to, uh, at least, you know, with where we are now, um, I I would say we don't want to do away with government, but and and I also I, I want to I want to say um, that for me uh, you know it, it's very intuitive the idea of a kind of uh, the you know free market capitalism where people are you know there's no, no economic regulations by the government right it, all they do is make sure that people don't hurt each other or they do their best to do that uh, you know with violence not you know hurting people with words is is not a thing kids no but um no okay <laughs> uh i i sort of take that back but anyway you know what i mean yeah yeah no but you you guys know what i mean hopefully but anyway um that for me it's very intuitive the idea of a kind of more libertarian economic situation is a dynamic society because you know in a static society everybody's got to do kind of like the same thing you know and in a dynamic society society everybody is being enter landmark authentic you know and and they're being kind of creatively unique 
and, and and so there's so much diversity with with kind of what's being done, what problems are being solved, what businesses are being created, and that you know f- economic freedom is is you know super effective. So so yeah, I mean like a dynamic society is sort of like uh, a kind of libertarian type economic situation, uh, or at least I, that's how I've always interpreted. Or you know, I, so I read the beginning of Infinity, and then like kind of later on, I realized there was this connection with certain economic stuff, and then I started like watching Milton Friedman videos, and I was like, oh my god, what? he's like, he's kind of like talking about a dynamic society here, away, or like the conditions for uh, economically, a conditions for a dynamic society. But uh, but yeah, I I think in general, with my limited understanding of this. Uh you don't i think you just alluded to that or even stated it explicitly we have knowledge in our institutions because they've been stable uh they are very stable rather they, they instantiate knowledge that it would be silly to just throw out the window and then again when you hear the anarcho capitalism arguments to me they make a lot of sense the knowledge problem the social calculation socialist calculation problem but 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 it doesn't say anything of how to get there to begin with, to just say the government is mm. bad because of this, this, and this. It's kind of like the whole thing of throwing out free will, something we want to do in another episode on soon, I think. Just free will doesn't exist, blah, 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 and then leave leave us without an explanation for for how to explain behavior. It seems kind right, of analogous right, to, right, that, right. To, to just throw out the state Dude, and say, oh my God. yeah, but what do we do then, you know? can I And, and can I just uh, lament the state of especially academic philosophy these days where it's like here are all these questions and oh potential solution oh that fails and it's like oh where are we oh there's there's nobody <laughs> knows that's philosophy it's like oh fuck this is so annoying like like you know that that's what it, that's what it is for me like I, I, I that's what i've noticed it's like yeah no we i i, I took this philosophy of religion class um and uh i bailed on the philosophy of science one as soon as i noticed he didn't take boffer seriously but uh, um but but uh, the Good philosophy you, religion class, there was all like the, the the professor that I had at the time did this whole like you know just throwing his hands up in the air and it's like it's like yeah like we went through all these kind of criticisms and stuff but we don't even have an alternative now we're just here with with the fact that all of these ideas seem not to be valid in some way so so what like like what's next like i need give me give me something that actually solves the problem don't just like tear it down and that's another key thing about the the critical rationalist way of life because it isn't just about criticizing things to your grave it's about you know you, you 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 can't just tear a theory down and then not have some place to jump to after that or rather it's I shouldn't say you can't do that, but it's so much better to have a place to jump to once you realize that some other idea fails, you know? Um, yeah. and, and if you have a, a good place to jump to after that, you'll understand better why the, the, um, the other ones fail. Um, yeah. And, and uh, I think, yeah, that, that's 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 key here. But, but and, and I'm not saying the anarcho-capitalists don't have a solution for this. As you said, like you can, you know, th- there's such a thing as um, having, you know, to privatize the kind of monopoly on violence or, you know, something like a police force or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that that's all very, to me, very uh, plausible. Um, you know, pe- and again, like if you're in a dynamic, dynamic society and people are solving their own unique problem situations of their own accord, people, you know, people just want to be policemen, you know? Um, some people mm. just want to go to space. Some people just want to um, be doctors. People, like, there's, the, like, if you give people the freedom to do what they want, 
you're going to have like the greatest diversity of anything in the world, you know? And so to say that, oh, but nobody's going to want to, you know, protect us. Of course, people are going to want to protect us. You know, there are that's the thing about the dynamic and creative nature of people. Yeah, that's the thing. Again, I think I said that in my episode with Logan, that the whole idea that, oh, we need a welfare state because no one would care for, for other people. We've created the welfare state. It's people exactly. because we care about yeah, people. Right. It would be the same with, with uh, police forcing and violence. Most people don't want uh, to be hurt or hurt other people. So, I, I mean, it's, it's just a matter of, of finding the optimal solutions gradually. But um, Totally. Yeah, man. I I uh, I had a blast talking to you like usual. This was a great uh, yeah, me too, man. Great chat. This is a long one. So <laughs> yeah, man. So I'm I'm gonna jump from these good explanations straight to bed. That's uh, gonna be great. <laughs> so, awesome, uh, man. Have a good night. Motherfucker.